Well, you've heard several times already that the year 2020 is upon us. I think everybody knows that by now. But maybe what you don't know by now is that means this year we have the Olympics. Yes, we do. Here, there in Tokyo, Japan, and uh, being a sports fan, I'm kind of looking forward to that. As usual, the American team, I'm sure, is putting together a great team of very, very talented people. Um, I know you and I will not be competing in the Olympics. At least I haven't heard anybody in here that's competing in the Olympics, maybe in your dreams last night. Um, but we will be watching just for the drama of it and, um, and just the amazement of what God has enabled the human body to do. The one who really deserves the honor and glory when you look at what a gymnast does or someone swimming or running or a high jumper does is not so much them but the creator of them. And uh, that's something that's utterly missed in a very humanistic culture that surrounds the Olympics. But you don't forget that, and you give praise and honor to uh, God as you see what uh, they accomplish. The Olympic Games have been a favorite spectacle since the times of ancient Greece. They supposedly began in 776 B.C. in the city of Olympia, thus the name. That's a long time ago. Um, they were also celebrated throughout the entire New Testament period all the way up until 393 A.D. So that's uh, like a thousand years of Olympic uh, competition in Greece. They were revived again in 1859, and when that happened, they caught on with great popularity all the way till today. Did you know that the imagery of the Olympic Games found their way into Holy Scripture? That's right. We actually read about something in Scripture that is related to those very Olympic Games. They actually form the background to some spiritual lessons that I want us to focus on and learn today. I think these lessons from uh, the Olympic imagery to our Christian lives will be very challenging as you think about uh, athletes and what they have to do to prepare and how that imagery is relayed and related to the Christian life and even more particularly to how we minister and serve each other in church or in evangelism, I think you'll find the lesson here just for this one Sunday to be very, very challenging. So if you would, for this morning, open to the letter of 1 Corinthians in chapter 9. It's not as well known of a chapter in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 24 through 27, and I'll read them now. 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. So you can already hear a little bit of the imagery that is there, running and boxing. Sometimes understanding spiritual realities gets confusing. We talk about these things, but you can't see them. And so you wonder, what does that 
exactly mean? How am I supposed to live the Christian life? What should I expect when I begin ministering to other people? What will I face? What will be the obstacles? So getting a concrete image in front of you can be very helpful. Here Paul was employing the popular Olympic imagery to impress on us vital spiritual lessons about Christian living and, yes, about ministry as well. One of Paul's purposes in writing this letter, and I'm not going to give a long introduction to it, the letter of 1 Corinthians, was to explain to the Corinthians his actions as an apostle. The apostle Paul's reputation had been maligned by a number of people in Corinth, and so in these two letters you find Paul having to do a lot of correction of this church and a lot of explaining about his apostolic ministry. Why did he do things this way and not that way? Why uh, did he emphasize this when another teacher maybe emphasized something that was different? In chapters 8 through 10, they form a significant section in this rather long letter. And it, the section comes to an end actually in chapter 11 and verse 1, if you want to look at it chapter 11, verse 1, where Paul simply writes, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. In other words, he explained himself to the Corinthian believers because he wanted the Corinthians and anyone else who would read this letter, like us, to pattern our lives after his life, to pattern our ministry after his ministry. And Paul uses the familiar games to teach everyone how he conducted himself in his ministry. What was he about? Just like Paul, we are runners in a race. We are running in a spiritual race. Just like Paul, we are fighters in a spiritual fight, and we need to know that. Really, this teaching here in our short section connects backward to chapter 8 and to chapter 9, where Paul is explaining his ministry goals, and along with that, why he did some of the things that he did in ministry. He wanted them to understand his motivation in ministry and what his aim was. Why, for example, did Paul not exercise the freedom that he had in Christ in certain situations? Why was it that when he was around the Jews, he acted one way, and when he was around the Gentiles, he acted a completely different way? What was that all about? What was his aim? What was he trying to accomplish? You know, he's trying to explain all of that by saying, because I want you to know my main goal, my main aim in what I'm doing. You know, it is New Year's time, and, and at New Year's time, people think about resolutions for their lives or, or uh, New Year's goals. I don't think that you have to do that. That's not a command in the Bible. But if, if something prompts your attention and gets you to maybe focus on being more obedient to the Lord, then I think that that can be a good thing. Well, Paul's life goal was to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. That was his goal. So he would do anything, anything that he could to advance the gospel, and in advancing the gospel, to build the church, right? Because as the gospel advanced, people were believing it, and it filled and built the church. And as the church was being built up, they needed to be trained as disciples. That helped the health of each local church. He dedicated his life to that one aim. He streamlined everything that he did to make sure that that one thing happened. And if you understood that about Paul's heart, you could understand his methodology even better. He chose to subject himself to discipline in order to advance the best message 
that there is anywhere in the world today. A lot of people think they have great messages, they have great spiels for their products or some cause that is out there. You notice when, uh, when uh, politics gets heated, everybody has, you know, their, their important subject that they think is, that everyone else should be standing up for and everyone has a cause that they think you should be spending money for and they'll, they'll tell you about that cause. But the best message and the best cause is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul understood that. And so he very wisely streamlined everything in his life to make sure that that advanced, the gospel advanced. Winning people to Jesus Christ was his aim. Notice in chapter 9 and verse 19, he says, Though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. I want to win more. I want more fruit. I want that to happen. And so though I have freedoms, I'm not going to use them. I'll make myself a slave because I've, I've got to win them. And I want, I want to see the word of God and the gospel spread into their lives. And that's, that's what I'm all about, Paul wrote. He knew that Christian liberty and even his own body had to be restricted if he was to be prosperous and fruitful in spiritual ministry. I'm not sure all of us have learned that, that uh, lesson but it's one you can learn today. It's a lesson I hope to drive deeply into each one of us as we start this new year. So write it down. Here's our, here's our main proposition for this section. Spiritual discipline and sacrifice yields greater spiritual fruit in ministry. I'll repeat that. Spiritual discipline and sacrifice yields greater spiritual fruit in ministry. Do you want to be fruitful? Do you want your life to count for the kingdom of God? Then you're going to have to be disciplined and you're going to have to make sacrifice. Well, from this copiously fruitful apostle, we learn three tips for spiritual success. And that's our outline today. Three tips for spiritual success. First, when you run your race, run it to win. <laughs> Don't lollygag, in other words. Run your race to win. Second, with self-control, make sure you're pursuing the greater prize. With self-control, pursue the greater prize. And third, discipline your body so that you're not disqualified in the end. Discipline your own body so you're not disqualified in the end. It's, it's not rocket science here, but it is very, very challenging to our own personal lives. So let's get into the first tip. Run your race to win. Look back at verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you will win. Now, some of you don't like running, but please don't let that keep you from learning the spiritual lesson here, okay? And the Corinthians had no problem understanding this image because they knew about the Olympics. Corinth is in Greece, right? But actually, the Corinthians were probably even more familiar with the lesser-known games called the Isthmian Games. They were held every two years rather than four years, and they were held just uh, eight miles or so outside of the city of ancient Corinth uh, on the Isthmus of Corinth, thus the Isthmian Games name. Paul particularly had in mind the foot races in those games as the backdrop to his words here in verse 24. Now, I love running. If uh, my body allowed me to run, I would run. People might say, where are you going? It really wouldn't matter. <laughs> Running to me is its own delight. But that is not what Paul is talking about right here. He's not talking about people like me who like to just run for the sake of running. The command here is not just to run, but to run to what? 
to win. I, I know some of you are not all that competitive out there, but you need to understand that in a race, that's the goal. If you start running next to somebody else and you can't tell they're running their hardest, it's not going to feel great if you win the race, right? Oh, come on, you didn't try your hardest. I want you to run your hardest, right? If you were playing a game and you won, you found out that they kind of let you win. What's the joy in winning, right? If you're, you, you need to run to win. That's what competition is all about. Why do we do that? Well, spiritually speaking, Paul wants you to think of your life and your service towards Jesus as a race. Have you thought of it that way? The Christian life is itself a race, and it's moving along. It'll come to an end. Our life time is limited. Some of you need to kind of wake up and realize that. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Every one of us should be engaged in the race. Every one of us should be running. And your goal in this race should not be to come in third place or fourth place. You might say, well, that's nice, a bronze medal. No, no, run to win. Run to win the prize. Run comes from the Greek verb treko. We get our word track from it. And the word race is stadion, from which we get our word stadium. Their track in those days was an oblong track, kind of this way, a little more than 200 yards in length. And they would run around it, obviously, as fast as they could. I often wondered about that. Were the ancients as fast as moderns? We have all the very technical work we put into uh, our sports now, and you can trim off, you know, three hundredths of a second if you wear this or you 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 do this motion with your hand when you're running. I, I doubt that they had it down to a science like we do. I don't know anyone would have beaten Usain Bolt's record, you know, in the hundred meters back then. But but you never know what they had back then, right? If you think though about the intensity of a race from start to finish. You should be thinking that, well, okay, what does that mean for my Christianity and my service? That's pretty intense, isn't it? That means I put a lot of effort into all of this. You, you run your very best. Fortunately, now listen to this, unlike the Olympic Games, in the Christian ministry, there can be many winners. There's only going to be one gold medal winner, right, in the Olympic Games, but that's not the case in Christian ministry. Notice that Paul does not say only one gets the prize. He says run as wanting to be the one who gets the prize. He's exhorting us to put everything into it so that we would win. He's writing to all believers, by the way, in that church. He's not writing just to the leaders. Sometimes you might think, yes, but it's just the missionaries and the pastors, you know, and the elders who are supposed to put their all into Christian ministry. That is not true. He was writing to every member of that church, and thus every member of this church should be listening to this exhortation. Dr. John MacArthur points out how we can all win. In his commentary, he writes this, A great difference between those races and the Christian race is that every Christian who will pay the price of careful training can win. We do not compete against each other, but against the obstacles, practical, physical, and spiritual, that would hinder us. In a sense, every Christian runs his own race, enabling each one of us to be a winner in winning souls to Christ. What does this mean for you? Well, in one word, I'll give it to you. It means this. It means sacrifice. It means sacrifice. You want to be a winner in the race, you're going to have to deal with the fact that God is going to demand from your life sacrifices of things that you don't want to give up, things that you don't want to do. That's what it's going to require. 
Now, I'll tell you that in the midst of that sacrifice, you might say, yeah, but that doesn't sound like fun. The more you sacrifice for God and the more you give up your will and do his will, the more you find what Romans 12 says is that his will is actually very, very acceptable. It's actually very good. And when you stick with it, you realize that the thing that you dreaded and the thing that you didn't want to do, actually you're finding now more joy and more fulfillment in it than you would have if you stuck with, if you stuck with your own plan. Isn't that amazing? God knows the source of joy and satisfaction and fulfillment much better than you. And so you need to learn to trust him with that. Now, many things are permitted in the Christian life. We are not a legalistic church. We don't bind the hands of people with man-made rules. We don't tell people you're not allowed to play cards, as the church I grew up in said, or you're not allowed to dance, or you're not allowed to go to the movies. We don't teach that because that's not Christianity. That's a false representation of what the Christian faith is all about. I don't want our young people to think that Hope Bible Church restricts freedoms that have been given through Christ to all of us. We have liberty and we are to protect that liberty. Even back in chapter 6 in this letter, in verse 12, Paul wrote, all things are lawful for me. Now, he wasn't talking about things that directly defy the law of God. He's talking about all of the things in life that we could choose to do, whether they're sports or whether they're crafts or whether they're entertainment. These things are all lawful. But not all things, please listen, not all things are helpful in making you more fruitful for the kingdom of Christ. Does that make sense? There are things you're allowed to do, but if you do them and do them and do them, you're not going to be all that fruitful in your Christian ministry. You can play three hours of video games or longer. That is allowable. You can sit in your house every single evening and watch the same show or or a different show or a movie and relax and enjoy your home. You can browse the Internet for hours reading the news or shopping. You can do those things. You can watch six hours of NFL playoff football. You can buy a nicer home with a nicer car and a nicer wardrobe and then have to work longer hours to pay for them. You are allowed to do those things, but you can't do those things and be fruitful for the kingdom of God. You can't. You just can't. At some point, you have to learn the lesson to give up pleasures, to give up comforts, to give up likes, to give up hobbies, to give up lifestyle, to give up conveniences. If your aim is Paul's aim, and that is to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's example speaks loudly, brothers. He gave up his comforts. He gave up his rights. Jesus was his passion. Jesus was his drive. He loved Jesus Christ and he loved Jesus' church. He ran to win. One day he knew that he would have to stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Jesus as we all will and give an account for his life. I don't know if this is the year that the Lord has chosen to promote me into glory, um, but no matter when it is, I want every single day that I live in this world to count for the kingdom of Christ. When I'm tired, I want the Lord to revive my strength, put some wings like eagles on me, and help me to be able to do more for Him. 
Mr. Ed Donaldson is a man very few of you have ever heard of. I see my wife smiling in the front row because she knew him. He left his comfortable suburban life and home and sold it all and bought a piece of land in southern Pennsylvania and turned it into a Christian retreat and camp center called New Life Bible Camp. I know this because it's a place that the Lord used in my college days to go to retreats and which had a profound spiritual impact upon me. His sacrifices led to the growth and salvation of many, many other people. He used to say to us, only one life to live will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. Have you heard that? He is in glory now, and he was right. And he is receiving from Christ all of the rewards, all of the crowns that went with his own personal sacrifices of finances, of lifestyle, of time, and whatever else he gave up for the Lord. Um, he is right. Life passes fast, and he's right. Only what you do for Jesus Christ will last into the next life. Please think about that, because you don't want to waste your life. It goes hand in hand with really learning wisdom, right? You and I are to harness all of our life and focus on the goal of advancing Jesus' message to the world, of winning people to Christ, building Christ's church. Indeed, we've been blessed to help build an entire region of churches here, Gamma, you know, the, the whole region of churches that looks to this church for a little bit of leadership. And I pray you understand that and realize the importance of that. Now, we are to run the Christian race to win and be involved in Christian ministry to win. You are to do this. You are to teach your children to do this. If you're homeschooling your kids, that's what you're to tell them. If they're in a Christian school, that's what they're to be taught. If they're in a public school, that's what you're to teach them. That's what parents should be passing on to their kids. You have only one life. It'll soon be passed. Kids never believe it'll soon be passed. Well, when you're going to grow up and you're going to study and learn your lessons, why? Why do all of that? Why do you get a job? What is the point? And the point is to help make a contribution in your work with your talents, with your knowledge to the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. That's the first tip. Second tip, with self-control, pursue the greater prize. Look at verse 25 now. Verse 25, with self-control, pursue the greater prize. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Paul wrote, they then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. You can note a sense of triumph there in Paul's words. There is a universal rule about competition that is stated right here. Everyone who competes must exercise self-control. Competes in the games comes from the verb agonizomai, from which we get words like agonize, and agony. The term itself refers to intense struggle of some kind. Competing as an athlete was not a half-hearted venture. They had to strive. In the ancient games, every competitor had to undergo strict training for 10 months straight if they wanted to be in the games. During those 10 months, the person had to undergo self-control in every area of their life. They spent the very last 30 days before the games attending exercises while being supervised. Have you ever looked at the exercise regimens and the eating regimens of sprinters and other athletes in the world? 
these days. I was reading about that this past week when they're trying to have, I'll just give the example of sprinters. Sprinters need a combination of strength and speed and explosiveness. So what do they do? They have a very methodical way of of lifting weights, and um, even the way they warm up has to be done in a certain way to make sure that their muscles really are at their peak performance to be able to, to spring into quick action. Um, they go through a, a series of sprints after that in exact intervals to build up the strength of their cardiovascular system. And then their eating has to be exact, the exact amounts at the exact times to get the, the maximum amount of energy when they're going to run the race. It's just amazing what they go through. They do it over a long period of time also. Notice that Paul writes that they have to exercise self-control in all things. That means in every way that's needed to prepare to win the race. It's vain to show up at the competition if you haven't for months been exercising self-control, right? What vanity that would be. You know, they'd be huffing and puffing, coming not just in last, but way behind the pack, and people would be like, yo, bro, what happened to you? Did you hurt yourself in the race? No, I'm just a little out of shape. I, I didn't realize the race was so far. <laughs> no self-control, then there's no competing and there's no winning. Self-control is the key. And I know some of you hate self-control, so you probably didn't hear me say that, so I'm going to say it again. <laughs> self-control is the key. For sprinters, training may make the difference between a 100 meters time of 9.85 seconds or 9.72 seconds, which may be the difference between a bronze and a gold, a gold medal. The race really, if you think about it, is won long before they get there through their self-control and their regimen of exercise. Well, the same is true for the Christian life. Self-control is the key. You might not have been thinking about that, but it really is. Self-control is even listed as one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, right? The fruit of the Spirit. How do we know where the Spirit of God is working in the life of a person? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Say it with me. Love, joy, peace, and it goes on, right? When you see those things in the life of a man or a woman, you know the Spirit of God is at work. Well, one of those is self-control, which you, you could see it as since it's self-control, really the power is coming from the Spirit of God, so we could call it what? Spirit control, right? Spirit control. If God is at work in your life and you're really responding to Jesus in obedience the way you should be as you're listening to the Word of God taught each and every single week, then you should be finding in your life a greater amount of self-control happening. That spirit control allows you, empowers you to put aside lesser things that you may enjoy, things that are not necessarily wrong, put them aside so that you can do more important things. For many of you, it's not bad things that you have to stop doing. It's actually lawful things that you do way too much. Remember, you're a Christian athlete in a much more important race. You can't just mosey through life and expect to be fruitful. I wonder if you would take some time to stop and take inventory of your life and actually look at how you spend your time. Not over the holidays, that's an exception, right? <laughs> but 
the normal course of your life? Where do you spend time? Maybe some of it you are spending time in things that you thought were important, but you need to take another look at it and realize that that thing takes far too much of your time and it's not yielding very much in terms of spiritual uh, fruit. Uh, I don't know what that might be for you, but the thing I'm, I'm encouraging you to do is to take an inventory of the way your time is spent and ask yourself, how important is this? How fruitful is this? Where am I making a difference with this? And of course, that takes a lot of thought, a lot of seeking counsel and looking at it. But that's that's what you're going to need to do because that's what's going to happen when you and I die and we go before the Lord and we walk up those steps, however many they will, there will be, and we rise the Bema seat, judgment seat of Christ, and there's the Lord Jesus, not to condemn us, but to evaluate how we lived and to reward us. And he asks us how we thought we lived our life for him. And uh, to me, that's the greatest accountability I will ever need. You know, I noticed in the, in the uh, bulletin that there's a meet the pastor coming up soon. I hope I'll be in good health for that so I could be at that. But people, when they come to the church, one of the first questions they ask is, what is your accountability? And I know what they're asking is, what kind of, what do you have built into the way the church is run to hold you as the senior pastor accountable? And I think that's a great question. And we need accountability. But I, I'm always honest with everyone. You know, you can, you can cheat and lie and hide things. You can be crafty at things. The greatest accountability for me is one day knowing I'm going to look in the eyes of Jesus Christ and there ain't nothing I can hide from him. That's my accountability. That's your accountability too. How are you going to live your life for him? I think that's something to think about. Cut out the waste in your life. You'll find that you have a lot more time to do more of what God wants you to do. Based on the exhortation in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 7, which uh, says there, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness, J. Adams in his booklet uh, entitled Godliness Through Discipline, great title, great little booklet, it's a short read, it'll transform your understanding about how to live the Christian life, by the way, get it and read it. It's called uh, Godliness Through Discipline by J. Adams. He writes this, Discipline is something that the Christian church lacks in our time. It is high time that we all recognize that God requires us to discipline ourselves by constant practice in obeying His revealed will and thus exercise, that is, train ourselves toward godliness. What does this involve? He continues to write, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus commands his dis disciples, take up your cross daily, denying the self. He does not mean denying yourself something. There is no idea of doing penance in this. For Lent, I'll stop chewing gum, says the penitent person. That is exactly not what is in view. Rather, Jesus insisted that Christians must deny the self within them. By the self... He meant the old desires, the old ways, the old practices, the old habit patterns that were acquired before your Christian conversion, end quote. Do you get the idea? By denying yourself, you cooperate with the Spirit of God, and discipline has a profound impact in the way you achieve sanctification and you grow, and therefore you position yourself to be more fruitful for God. How do you gain better self-control? You gain it by learning to yield to the Holy Spirit of God who is in your life. Let God's Spirit have control of the way you think. Let 
God's Spirit have control of the direction of your life and of the goals of your life and of the, the, the very talents that you have and you bring uh, to bear upon ministry. Don't resist Him. When He speaks to you through His Word, listen. Conform yourself to what He wants. Give yourself to the priorities that God has for you. When the Spirit of God is working in you, you will learn to love more, learn to love more people and to learn to love them in a greater way. And as you love them, you'll be giving up the things you want to do and you'll learn to serve other people. You'll learn self-control. You'll learn how to focus on service. You'll learn delight in sacrificing for others. We need to run the race hard to win, but we also need the training that the Spirit of God does in our heart first. What is it that should motivate us to do all of this? We're already saved. We're already going to heaven. Why should we serve so intently? Well, the ancients, Paul says here, the athletes were motivated by a prize. Theirs was to receive a perishable wreath that went around their head. And of course, they were crowned with the wreath. And so they had that momentary glory, right? The applause was there and the attention and the fame that went along with it. We're told that the Greeks awarded a woven wreath of twines and plant parts. In Olympia, it was supposedly made of laurel. And at the Isthmian Games, it was originally made of pine and then made of celery, of all things. I don't know how you make that look good. I don't know what that does for the hair. But it was clearly decorative and attractive. But it was not long-lasting, right? It would quickly fade away, and so would the fame and the applause from winning the race. Do you get at what Paul's point is? We have a much better crown that is coming to us, right? We have a much greater prize. You know, by, by four years from now, 2024, if the Lord tarries, people are going to forget who won the gold medal in, in this and in that, right? Do you remember who won the gold medal four years ago or eight years ago? You know, sometimes we remember the names of those that cheated to get their goals better than those that, that won. You know what I mean? So, so it's short lived is the point. Yes, we remember some of them like Usain Bolt or Carl Lewis. There's certain names we may never forget, but most of them are forgotten. But you, there has to be a higher motivation. There has to be a greater prize for the Christian to give up things, right? Brothers and sisters, I would just say to you, don't be so short-sighted in what your prize is that you're pursuing. You know, what is, what is it that you really want to have? I think sometimes those things that that seem to to glitter and be so important, if you were to receive them now, you'd realize that they too fade. They don't last. And they certainly don't bring the happiness that you think they would. That something better here, Paul says, is an imperishable wreath, an imperishable prize. That's something better, right? Even gold and silver and bronze tarnish over time. What Christ will award to us on that day will never be taken from us and will always be a delight and a joy to us. Imperishable is the Greek term apharthos. It means undecaying, imperishable, incorruptible. It will always be there. It will always endure. It will never lose its luster. It's superior to anything that you would ever get in this world. 
In 1 John 3, 2, John wrote, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We don't even know what we will look like, much, much less the crown that will be awarded on our heads. When you serve the Lord Jesus Christ, he will take note of that, and he will award you with a crown for your service toward him. We don't really know what that crown will be, but we know it will be something that will be delightful and it will be something that won't perish. Some of the crowns that are listed in the New Testament refer to crowns that every single believer will receive, such as the crown of life that is listed in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 10. Everybody's going to get that. We're going to get the crown, which is life. We're all going to be crowned, in other words, with everlasting life. And that's something we'll receive. But there are other crowns that come that some believers get and other believers don't because of their sacrifice because of their service for the kingdom. That's what the context is here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's about those that will give themselves to greater service, to accomplishing more for the kingdom of Christ. It's similar to what Paul wrote back in chapter 3, which we don't have time to go back there, but he was addressing workers and particularly the leaders in the church. He was talking about himself and he said, I planted the church in Corinth. Apollos came along and he watered, but God caused the increase. And he said, everyone, everyone's work, every leader's work will be evaluated on the judgment day. And any work that was done for the wrong motive or was done in the wrong way, we would say it's not truly a biblical ministry and it wasn't done with the right heart motivation. It'll be burned up in the fire. The person will still be saved. They won't lose their salvation. But what they thought they were going to gain from Christ, they'll lose it all because it wasn't ministry done in the right way with the right heart. But here he's saying if you serve and you sacrifice, he has a crown for you. He has something extra to give to you. And it's not something that will be disappointing. No, we can't see it now. But by faith, we could say it's going to be glorious and it is worth the sacrifices that we make for the kingdom of God. So what do I say to you? From this text, I would say exercise that self-control. You don't lose anything by exercising self-control. And what you gain is going to be so wonderful, you'll keep that for all of eternity. Christ and his kingdom, brothers and sisters, is worth the self-control sacrifice that he's calling you to do. It's worth it. All right, we come to our third tip. Discipline your body so you are not disqualified. Look at verses 26 and 27. Discipline your body so you are not disqualified. This, there's a note of a, a warning here as he ends this. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. And now he brings in the boxing imagery. So there was boxing in the ancient games. We know that. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be what? Disqualified. Oh, my. Paul's purpose continues into verse 26. He runs with aim. He boxes not to beat the air. He's no shadow boxer. He is in a real spiritual fight, and he knows it. And the gospel was spreading because he was in that fight. And he, he wrote this repeatedly in the last paragraph, previous to verse 24. He wrote over and over again that his aim was to win the lost, to win the lost, to win the lost. The spreading of the gospel. 
the spreading of the gospel, the building of the church, the winning of the lost, that was his aim. But here's the connection that he's making now. His own personal discipline, the way he disciplined his own body, was connected to the fruitfulness of winning the lost. Do you see that? The way he treated his body and brought his body under submission to himself was connected to how fruitful an apostle he was able to be. Without discipline, his ministry would be less prosperous. Without discipline, the gospel would spread not as far. Without discipline, the churches would not be as strong. Without discipline, he would not be as fruitful. So he says, I discipline my body. You know, discipline literally means to make it black and blue. Give myself a black eye is the literal idea behind it. He boxes his own body. He forced his body to be disciplined. Does that sound like the kind of effort you put into your Christian life? I don't want you to misunderstand because some people who twist the Scriptures run in a wrong direction with this. Paul was not advocating asceticism or severe treatment of the body. In fact, Paul taught directly against self-flagellation in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 23 where he wrote, self-abasement and severe treatment of the body are of no value against fleshly indulgence. You could... You could beat your body, but it will not take the lust out of your body. He's not, he's not teaching that here. Please don't leave here and, and beat yourself up, okay? He did not literally punch his own body. The bruises he refers to is what others did to him as he served. And that he may have wanted to say, wait a minute now, this hurts too much, I quit. But he wouldn't. He continued to receive the blows. He continued to minister knowing what was coming. In fact, in chapter 4 of this epistle, in verses 11 through 13, we have a sample of what the Apostle Paul endured in his body. There he wrote this, To this present hour we are both hungry and thirsty, and are poorly clothed, and are roughly treated, and are homeless, and we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Wow, that's the kind of stuff he endured. This man was stoned. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. Why? So that he could win the lost. So that he could bring more to Jesus. So he could be more fruitful. That's amazing, isn't it? He disciplined his own body. Some of you can't even get out of bed in the morning to come to an event that will help you grow as a Christian. Yes, we need to learn about personal bodily discipline. When we talk about disciplining the body, we need to remember the body itself is not evil. Again, some people twist this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 20, and this is just one sample, of, of the goodness of the human body as being created by God. It says, glorify God in your body. Did you know you can glorify God in your own, your own body that you live in? Why then this image of the body having to be so subdued? Well, please understand the body, your body is not evil. But the body is not yet 
uh, converted. Your body is not yet delivered from the power of sin. Your soul has been redeemed. Your body's redemption is what we call the resurrection. That hasn't happened yet. So your body's still in its fallen condition inherited from Adam and Eve. It still has evil inside of it. You might say that evil kind of resides in your body and takes advantage of your body. The sin nature uses your flesh, uses your body in an attempt to tempt you, to get you to do evil, or at least to get you to to back off doing good. And so perfectly good desires for food and for comfort and for sex and for rest that were all God-given are easily twisted and easily perverted to put ourselves first and our desires first. And that is what is evil. When you are born again, though, you have a new nature inside of you, right? You are a new person in Christ now. So there is a struggle between that new you, that new nature that you have, and that remnant of indwelling flesh that resides in your body. In Galatians chapter 5, in verses 16 and 17, it speaks of this struggle, and it's a struggle every one of us has. Paul writes there, I say, walk by the Holy Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. You're going to have a battle inside your body for the rest of your life. And Paul knew that. He knew about the struggle. And that's why he he writes... I make my body my slave. Very tough terminology. It's worded that way so you can see the kind of effort it takes to grow in Christ, the kind of effort it takes in cooperation with the Spirit of God to to get rid of bad habits so you can count for the kingdom of God. I enslave my body. I will not let it master me. Paul would do whatever he had to do to fulfill his apostolic calling. Dr. Garland, in his commentary, writes this, Paul endured physical privations to win over his bodily cravings so that he can then win others over to Christ. Discipline for discipline's sake, therefore, does not drive him. He buffets his body. That's not buffets his body, by the way. (laughs) He buffets his body and makes it his slave to heighten his capacity to deny himself so that he could serve others, end quote. In the same way, your body must not be your Lord. Remember that old Sprite commercial in the 1990s? Obey your thirst. And those who obey their thirsts also obey their lusts and their impulses. But an athlete is able to overcome those things, beat his body into submission, make it obey so that he can accomplish what he needs to accomplish. Unfortunately, even with most athletes, they do it for their own glory. And that is increasingly obvious in today's sport world. And that, please understand, young people, is vanity and is not to be imitated. Uh, The Christian is not to let his desire for anything be above his desire to humbly serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Your, your 
reward, your award will not be in this lifetime. People will not be congratulating you because you live the Christian life well. You will not get a wreath in this world because you live the Christian life well. If you serve and you, you break your back for the church and, and, and people even in the church don't recognize it, no one in the world is going to come to you and say how wonderful a person you are, what an outstanding citizen you are for serving well in your church. They're not going to do that. You, you have to beat your body in submission and you have to know what the prize is that is ahead of you. You have to believe that. Paul ends all of this with that warning. If you don't buffet your body, if you don't make it your slave, there's the real possibility that you will be disqualified. And he didn't want that. Paul did not want to preach to others, then fail in his personal example to do what was right by giving in to his bodily desires and be disqualified. Preaching, by the way, here refers to evangelistic preaching. And disqualified is the term adakimas. It refers to being unapproved. It would be used in the games to mean someone who did not compete according to the rules, and so they were what? Disqualified, right? Now, for us, what does disqualified mean? Well, remember, whenever you interpret Scripture, you must interpret according to context, right? This does not mean you are disqualified from being a Christian. Otherwise, you might think of just one slip-up and then... Just like that, you're no longer saved. That would be a scary prospect, right? And those that are deep into Arminian theology have to worry about that because they actually think they gave themselves the faith to be saved and they can therefore lose their own faith and become unsaved. That's a scary thought. But Christians are not saved by granting themselves faith. We are saved by the grace of God. Even the faith we have is a, is a gift from God. Uh, our sin will never be greater than God's grace. So we don't need to worry about losing our salvation. If that thought came to you as we were reading this passage, I'm going to quote three verses to you very quickly. Jude 24, there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude verse 24, Christ is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. I'm looking forward to that. Because, you know, if, if T. Leak, if it was up to T. Leak, he would wander away. But, but Christ holds me fast, right? As the song says. Romans 8.39, nothing created is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. John chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus said, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And he went on to talk about how the Father is greater than all and no one can snatch him out of the Father's hand. The context here in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27, I hope by now is obvious to you. It's not about salvation. It's about service, service for Christ. Disqualification means disqualification in ministry. It means that you preach to others, but then you did the opposite of what you preached to them, and now you have lost your credibility with them. They're not going to listen to you anymore. You're in the workplace and you've tried to live up to a certain standard and now you have, in a hypocritical manner, you've violated that trust from others and they know it, they spotted it, and you may have lost your ability now to win them to cry or your neighbor or whoever is watching you closely. They, they won't listen to you anymore. You had an opportunity, you had a chance, 
but now it's gone. Dr. Gramaki comments, an Olympic athlete who won a race did not lose his Greek citizenship if he was subsequently disqualified. However, he did lose the honor and forfeited his wreath crown. Again, I could bring up certain names of people in the Olympics that were cheated, but I won't do that, who, who cheated, I'm sorry, and, and lost their medals. But you know the point. We could bring up the names of fallen Christian ministers, couldn't we? Of people who had great TV ministries, and they, they had an incredible opportunity, all kinds of money, all kinds of uh, opportunity to bring the gospel and biblical teaching into the homes of millions of people, and they lost the opportunity because they were caught cheating on their wife or because they were caught uh, coveting the gold or whatever it may have been, right? And it's so sad. The same can happen to me. The same can happen to you. And the, and the more the more opportunity you're given in Christian ministry, the more Satan will go after you to bring you down. And so you have to watch yourself carefully. It is, uh, it is logical that Paul wrote to young Timothy as a pastor in 1 Timothy 4, take heed unto thyself first. This applies to every believer. If you want your life to count for Christ 10 years from now, 20 years from now, don't lose what Christ has given to you. Don't lose the testimony. Don't lose the influence that God has given you in the lives of your children and your grandchildren in your workplace or wherever it may be. Don't be disqualified in the eyes of those people. What a joy to get to the very end of your life and be able to write as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. That's what we want for all of you. So bring your body under submission to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ so that you can fulfill the mission of Christ, and that is reaching the lost for Him and building His church. Amen? It does not keep you from the good life. Personal, bodily discipline is not your enemy. It will not rob you of joy and of the good life. When you learn the joy of discipline, you'll learn that you had in your mind a lie of Satan that kept you from greater discipline and also kept you from greater abundant living in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray you can see through that lie and you and I can learn to discipline our body in a greater way in this coming year. Look around the church and see people that are very busy already and yet they're accomplishing more for the Lord Jesus Christ even though they're busy. And why is it? Because they've disciplined their schedule, they've disciplined their body, they've disciplined themselves, they've said no to themselves and no to their own will, and God is using them. Mark them as an example and pattern your life after them and after the Apostle Paul, and you too will be fruitful in the new year. Amen? Father, take your word and impress it upon our hearts and change the way we live. And bless us as we come to your table now, Lord, as we fellowship around your table and have fellowship with you. Uh, we love to be in your presence, Lord. Thank you for being close with us. We need your power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. Amen.